God is on our side. Israel thwarts a major terrorist attack. That story breaking this morning. Raven anti-Semite Kanye West wants to go to Australia, but Australia doesn't want him. Sorry, mate. And the oldest working journalist in the world. He has the Guinness World Record. Walter Bingham is on today's show. You are going to love him. I had such a great time interviewing him. I have a great show for you today. I would say sit back and relax, but you're not listening to my show, Relaxed. You're thinking, what on earth is she going to say next? This is the Weekly Squeeze. I'm your talented and humble host, Hanala Music, coming at you from the land of Israel. It's a chilly day, 11 degrees Celsius. I don't know what that is Fahrenheit, but it's colder than it was when I was growing up in Florida. But we enjoy that, like I said. We don't mind a little chill, so long as we are safe. So that's something I could excitedly share this morning. We are going to be safe yet another day in this country, thanks to the IDF and the God of the Jewish people, who has got our back. So let's discuss what's going on. There's been a lot, a lot of activity um, between the IDF and the Palestinians in the last month, just nonstop, really. Our soldiers are in their neighborhoods, um, and that's not a good thing, because Israel hates sending the IDF into those terrorist enclaves. It's extremely unpleasant. Our boys have to go into the lion's den, into the terrorist's lair uh, for self-defense. For self-defense, if anyone in their right mind thinks that my peers would allow their sons to be part of an army that's sending these boys into Janine just for the hell of it, just because, you know, we're occupiers. So, you know, this is just the agenda. This is what we do. We just occupy countries because we have nothing else to do with our time because Jews are not busy enough with the 613 mitzvahs that we have to do pretty much every single day, all day. Like, we, don't, we have nothing to do. All we want to do is occupy, in air quotes, occupy. The word occupy is so offensive because the Palestinians are occupying Israel with terrorism. I mean, that's really what's happening. The Palestinians are occupying Israel with nonstop terrorism for the last 70 years. Their terrorism occupies our lives. Because of their terrorism, we have to send our boys to be soldiers. And because of their terrorism, we have funerals all the time. And because of their terrorism... Every single year, the whole entire country goes into mourning for 48 hours over Yom Ha'atzma'ut and, and, and Yom Ha'atzikaron. Because even on Yom Ha'atzma'ut, we remember the cost, the, the bloodshed, the expense that terrorism has on Israelis, the economic expense, the emotional expense. I mean, we can go, talk for hours on the impact that terrorism has on Israelis, the psychological impact, the emotional impact, the distress the anxiety. Do you think any Israeli would sign up for this kind of life so they can occupy Palestine? We do not occupy Palestine. Palestine occupies Israel with, ter- with terrorism, and there is no Palestine. And you will hear that from Walter Bingham, who has lived for a hundred years. He's my guest today. And he's going to remind us that there is no Palestine. There was no Palestine. There was no civilization here in Israel before the Jews arrived. When the Jews arrived in the early 50s and 60s, there were Bedouins in tents. Most of these people have been brought to work here in Israel, and that was something they wanted to do eagerly, because in Israel, we don't abuse people, unlike in all the other Muslim countries where Shiites and Sunnis you know, are murdering each other violently for, for thousands of years. <laughs> we're kidding. I mean, the Jewish people are not violent. We are not looking to occupy anything. I mean, the, the whole concept that Israel is aggressively doing something. No, no, no. We are defending our people. We are defending the land that we rightfully own. This is our land. Millions of dollars were given to the Arabs in the early 40s, 50s, and 60s. Golda Meir writes about it in length in her memoir, which I've read many times. A lot of money exchanged hands. But here we are all these years later, and the world is just regurgitating this lie, this myth, this fallacy that Israel somehow is occupying the Palestinian people, who are all basically terrorists or terrorist wannabes. I mean, they teach that in school. They glorify violence. They give kids weapons from an early age. They teach their children, their little girls and boys, over and over. The same way we teach our children, Shema Yisrael Hashem Hashem there's one God, 
and he rules the world. And that's the message that the Jewish people bring on to the nations, by the way. That's what Avram did, and that's what the Jews do. So to think that we would glorify violence, we don't. That the Arabs do, the Palestinians do, and they do it shamelessly. They do it day after day. They teach their children a lie that Yerushalayim belongs to them. I mean, are you kidding? Everybody knows the Har Habayas belongs to the Jewish people. That's where the Beis Hamikdash was. Our entire religion revolves around that exact spot where the Beis Hamikdash will be in the era of Mashiach. So to think that the the Palestinian people have successfully led the entire world to believe a lie is a a result of anti-Semitism because Esav hates Yaakov and that's not going away, and it's the result of the Arabs living out the, the prophecy. They, they live by their swords. That's their entire mahus. That's their entire reality. And we live by the Torah. And sure, there's Jews that are, you know, not perfect. And, and that's no secret. And there are mistakes that are made. You know, we're a nation that's as flawed as any other. And unfortunately, we pay the price over and over for our misdeeds. But to allow the world to paint a picture that's not true... And for us not to stand up and say, kid, that's not true. There is no genocide. You know, Rashida Talib standing in her Washington office with a massive Palestinian flag behind her. Could you imagine if a Jewish senator or congressman tweeted out a picture like that? Could you imagine how hysterical the world would be that the Zionist flag is the, the apartheid flag? The flag of the evil Zionists is waving in Washington and it's Islamophobic to do that. I mean, could you imagine the reaction? And here we have her tweeting it out and tweeting that the reason she's waving this flag is to remind people that this flag is not allowed to be waved in Israel. Why should that flag be allowed to be waved in Israel? It's a terrorist flag. It re- represents war. I mean, what on earth? The world has gone mad. Seriously, the world has gone mad. Let me tell you something. And I'm not saying this to be facetious. I truly believe that the Palestinians are lucky that it is us, the Jewish people, of all the nations in the world, of all the people, of all the murderous, terrible human rights offenders around the world, they are lucky, they are blessed that the Jewish people are their, quote, occupiers. Let's put it this way. Let me rephrase that. They're lucky that the Jewish people put up with their garbage. Any other nation would have destroyed them a long time ago. And they know it. Of course they know it. They're laughing at us. They're laughing at us how our hands are tied. That they could do whatever they want. They could stab us with axes and knives and hatchets and murder Israelis in the park, in front of their children, in their beds, year after year, month after month, week after week, day after day. And the whole world is like, it's you, Israel. You are Nazis. You didn't learn your lesson from the Holocaust. You are doing a Holocaust on the Palestinians. It's fake news. It is 100% fake news. And I don't care how many clips they share of an oppressive, mean Israeli soldier with a mean face or holding on to a Palestinian kid. Their entire cities are overflowing with terrorists and mini terrorists. Why do you think the IDF is there? You think they're there to help with traffic? They're there because they're dealing with terrorism. And when you deal with terrorism and violence and war, it's not pretty. It is not pretty. We would love it to go away. We would love it to be uh, d- different. But unfortunately, this is what we have to do. We have to protect the Jews in Israel and all the Israeli citizens, the Arabs included, who live here, rightfully so, and follow the law. We have to protect them from terrorism. That is the job of Israel. And they're doing the best they can under the circumstances. So I, you know, you, you can't, get, you can't uh, change the way I feel about this. The Palestinians are terrorists and terrorist wannabes, and the Jews are defending the land of Israel, the land that was given to them by God. It is recorded in the Old Testament which the Christians and the Muslims know to be holy and the authoritative uh, source of their religions. So to throw that all away, because the Palestinians are having a temper tantrum like a two-year-old in a dirty diaper, well, that would just make you an anti-Semite. Anyways, this is all developing still, but basically, um, according to Intel reports from the Shin Bet, a large-scale terror attack a terror attack was being planned in Janine. IDF troops conducted an operation this morning to catch a top PIJ operative. 
Six terrorists dead, Baruch Hashem, and the largest operation in Janine in six years. Ah, oh, for goodness sake. This is just, I don't know, so extra, so extra, so unnecessary. Terrorism is just the worst of the worst. And I'm so glad that Israel managed to thwart this one because who the heck knows with these Arabs? They're just determined. And according to sources, Palestinian Arab sources, Israeli security forces arrived disguised as Arabs, hidden on a milk truck. Such a fouta mission. Um, once their presence was detected, shooting broke out, and according to at least one account, eight terrorists were eliminated. Good. Just to paint a picture, during the exchange of fire, calls went out in the Janine mosques ordering Arabs to come to the aid of the terrorists. That means they're sending out a message, a public message to the entire city that every man, woman, and child should come out of their houses because the IDF is catching terrorists that were plotting to murder Israelis. I mean, the lunacy of this all and the lunacy of the world believing that the Palestinians are somehow the victims. This week's episode has been brought to you by OK Clarity. OK Clarity is the simplest way to find therapists and other wellness professionals who specialize in working with the Jewish community. Whether you are looking for a therapist, a psychiatrist, dietitian, or a coach, or whether you are a therapist, psychiatrist, dietitian, or coach, OK Clarity has something to offer you. Head over to their website. You're going to be so impressed. There are dozens of mental health videos, guides, articles, and posts from their community of trained and certified mental health care professionals from all over the world. So find the best verified professionals near you on OK Clarity's website. Super easy to navigate. Their directory curates the best therapists, the best psychiatric medication providers, coaches, dietitians um, with specialized interests. So whatever it is you're dealing with, there is a terrific place now that will help you find the right mental health care professional for your needs. So whether you are a mental health care professional or you're just looking for some support, head over to their website. The link is in my show notes. So scroll down, click on the link, check out the website, okclarity.com. All right, what's next? All of this talk is going to make me need to go to OK Clarity's website and get myself a mental health care professional. <laughs> All right, speaking of people who need a mental health care professional, uh, apparently Kanye West wants to go to Australia, and apparently Australia doesn't want him. Peter Wertheim, the co-chief executive officer of the Executive Council of Australian Jewry, met government officials on Tuesday to argue for an entry ban. We had a sympathetic hearing, he told Sky News. We made the case that this particular individual does not meet the character test and that it would be in the national interest not to grant them a visa. And we set out our reasons in some detail. So, yeah, I mean, if you want to take Kanye West and let him stay in Australia, that would be amazing. Like if the, the Jews in Australia want to take one for the team and let Kanye West set up shop over there with the kangaroos in the Australian boondocks, I would support that fully. But if he's just coming to vacation and try to make money, um, let that anti-Semitic nut job stay where he is. All right, let's get to the interview. So let me tell you a little bit about Walter Bingham. Walter Bingham has two Guinness World Records. He's the oldest working radio talk show host and the oldest active journalist in the world. Now, I know this to be true because I was in his apartment just a few days ago. And I got to talk to him. He lives in Yerushalayim. He broadcasts weekly on Israel National Radio. I've been listening to his show for five years. And he writes for the Jerusalem Post and the Jerusalem Report. I mean, it's amazing. So he celebrated his 99th birthday. Um, until recently, he's been flying a plane, okay? He once flew an airplane alone from London to Tel Aviv and back. This guy is super cool. At 95 years old, he did a skydive from 13,000 feet. And you can find that on YouTube. Walter Bingham, at 95 years old, jumped off an airplane, okay? So if something is holding you back, uh, let Walter Bingham remind you how life should be lived, okay? He's a Holocaust survivor. Uh, he was separated from his mother, who put him on the kinder transport and sent them to London, but he was one of the very few children who was actually reunited with his mother, luckily, but he was extremely traumatized by that experience. He spent half of his life in the British Army, Okay, in the counterintelligence unit. 
And he once interviewed a Nazi. He once had a Nazi brought into his office, Foreign Foreign Minister Joachim von Ribbentrop, who denied all knowledge of the final solution and and the Nazi's policy to exterminate all Jews. Okay, he was the first to be executed during the Nuremberg war, tri- war crime trials, and Mr. Bingham sat in front of him. Walter Bingham is a legend, basically. So if you go on YouTube, you can find videos where he talks about what it was like living under the Nazis for six years. He witnessed Kristallnacht and the infamous book burning um, and I was like, I- I'm going to go to his apartment and I'm going to sit with him and I'm going to talk to him and I'm, and I'm going to learn from him. And I'm going to bring that interview to my podcast listeners all around the world who I think will thoroughly enjoy hearing from a gentleman that is full of life, who is intelligent and articulate and interested in sharing because he was more than excited, more than eager to have me over for two hours. And then he was just going to continue his day recording his own podcast. I mean, the guy is a force to be reckoned with. So without further ado, Mr. Walter Bingham. Mr. Walter Bingham, good morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure pleasure to have you here. Thank you. You are 100 years old. No, I am in my hundredth year of life. Here we go. So I'm 99 years old. But when you are uh, after your 99th birthday, you can say that you are in your hundredth year of life. You've been here a long time. (laughs) Uh, uh, you, You need a lot of patience to get to that age. You know, and, and you know what? People, lots of people tell you, this is good for you, and that's good for you. And I think birthdays are good for you, and I'll tell you why. Because statistics show that the people who have the most live the longest. <laughs> Indeed, and you are certainly proof of that. So you have lived a long time. You bore witness to the Holocaust and its aftermath. You are a decorated British soldier. So you've lived most of your life in England. In England, yes. Indeed. And okay. only I came, I made Aliyah in 2004. Uh, after I should have been here in 1937, I was a member of Bachat, of, and they had a youth movement, Britannoir, which in fact uh, became or was uh, B'nai Akiva. So I'm the oldest B'nai Akiva boy around. You'll add that to the list of uh, Guinness World Book of Records. Yeah. Allow me to ask you some questions about your life, your purpose, your passions, and your faith. I'm sure my audience will appreciate to hear your thoughts as, as I have for the last five years. Um, you are a Jew. You have lived a long life. What does being Jewish mean to you? What do you love about the Jewish people and the Torah? Two in, in, interesting questions. I am a very proud Jew. Tell us why. Because uh, this is, first of all, I was born. And you know that the circumstances of your life can either turn you one way or they can turn you another. You can either say, I thank Hashem because he saved my life and he did this for us and he, he uh, uh, let me get we probably come that reunited with my mother after the war. Or you can say, where was Hashem in the Holocaust? Where was he? So, but for me, being a Jew is, well, first of all, that's how I was brought up. Uh, I, I, I want to say here that there were periods when I went off the derrick. That happens to many people. Uh, but uh, what can you say to people who are struggling with their faith? Oh, that's hard. I want to give you a good answer, and that's very hard. You are saying you're asking some very uh, difficult questions. Good, but difficult question. Uh, well, you, I suppose you have to think. You have to go back and think about the world the existence of the world, where does it, where does it come from, uh, how is it that, that we have all these 
planets and things going round and round and round for hundreds and thousands of years going round and they don't bump into each other. <laughs> there must be an order that's not just uh, uh, haphazard. Now we have uh, shooting up these things uh, where there may be actions, but the original creation, the, 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 the planets, and, uh, and they don't bump into each other. They, they're going round and we know today when Halley's Comet will be here in, in 40 years, to the second almost. There, that's an order in the, in the universe. And that order cannot be just by chance. That, there must be some control. And uh, we believe that this is the Almighty who is controlling that. Uh, and if you're struggling with your faith, think about that. You're not just here like this. Well, apart from the purpose in life that we are, we are, we are being controlled by, by some higher power. There's a higher power, otherwise, otherwise it couldn't function. The world could not function. I like to say we're in good hands. A, a transition from, from religious life to non-religious life and back again, that comes with experience. Uh, often it's circumstances. In my case, it was it, there were circumstances that got me off the derech. I came. I was alone. I had no one to guide me. Uh, first of all, I was in the army, and I was in the battlefield. You didn't have a normal Jewish childhood. No, to say the least. absolutely not. Uh, and uh, I mean, I, I did uh, to some extent up to about 15 uh, under the Nazis. Of course, six years under the Nazis. And I went to school three years before the Nazis came to power under the Weimar Republic. But later on, yeah, I went, I was in the army, and uh, you're in a battlefield, and that's the only food you get. So. Uh, I admire the people who in concentration camps uh, kept, kept tried to faith. keep kosher. But if you have to be strong and fight and do the, then that's where it started. Then I came after that, I said, oh, uh, you know, I went, I came, went back to London and the first time I went on a bus on Shabbat, I was frightened. I thought, oh, I will fall off and, and fall under the wheels, really. And then I found didn't happen, didn't happen. And so I, I, li I lived for a long, uh, for, for some time like this. A and then I came out of the army and I went into a Jewish, area, a, a Jewish refugee area in London and got myself back into, uh, and it took a very, very, very long time. You see, my field, my academic field is philosophy, political philosophy. Philosophy is analytical, asking questions. Probing. There are no right answers. If you write an essay for a university philosophy, it's not like mathematics, it's not a right or wrong. It depends how you argue it. So philosophy, you inquire, it's inquire. When I was a little boy, they called me in German, my family, the warum, the why, because I always kept asking why. I, I have an inquisitive uh, nature, and that does not help you when you want to be Shabbat, you want to be religious, because you, you, you're analyzing all the time, why, how come this, how come that. On the other hand, you analyze and you say the world doesn't function without uh, a control. So uh, You could apply it in the right way or the wrong way. It's very difficult. Considering um, how the separation from your mother so deeply impacted you or affected you, you've spoken about it a number of times, um, how have you managed your emotions over the years when you're reflecting on the past and how do you remain joyful and positive to the extent that you are a working journalist and to me it appears a happy, well-adjusted, wonderful gentleman? <laughs> I hope to be uh, well-adjusted. Well uh, I'm very fortunate that, uh, that the, the past and the agony hasn't, uh, it has affected me, but that I have been able to deal with it. Uh, look, 
Everyone who's been through the Holocaust, and I don't mean only the camps, because today talk, people talk about Holocaust survivors and really mean the camps. Well, the Holocaust started, actually started on the 9th of November 1938, Kristallnacht. That was the beginning after a long preamble of, uh, of, of laws. And you were there. there. And I was there. Everyone who has survived the Holocaust has some emotional problems. It had a profound effect on Absolutely. them. Absolutely, everybody. And the children of Holocaust uh, survivors. I give you an example. My, my, my mother, you know, was a, a, a labor camp survivor. And I, having just experienced not the the uh, horrible events of camps and Holocaust, but just a Nazi, uh, the slow strangulation of Jewish life, and uh, subsequently the events that started the Holocaust, I am still affected very much. Uh, for, for instance, uh, I once won a thousand pounds on the premium bond. This is a bond from the post office which keeps its value, its pound value. So I, I thought, it's a lot of money, maybe I can do something, business with it. I had bank accounts in six different countries where that money was spread. I had a bank account in Sweden, because I got Swedish connections, you probably know. In bank account in England, a bank account in Switzerland, a bank account in Austria, and a bank account in Germany. Who does that? That's the Neurosis. effect of the Holocaust, just in case Paranoia. I have to go and I should have some money. That, but, that's the effect it had on me. So but, you can see yes. that I'm affected. But there are people who never got past it, never were able to to move on and be productive. And you were very productive. You, uh, you say that perhaps from your genes, is it genetic? Or have you worked on yourself so that you can move past and, and well, be positive? Uh, you don't look back. You have to be positive in life. Look forward. Life goes on regardless. Uh, if you don't do that, uh, life will push you under. You have to uh, make sure that you stay afloat. Uh, whatever life throws at you, you have to deal with the important things. Uh, and you have to see that you, as I said, stay afloat. Look, if you are positive and you work on it, Hashem will help you succeed. If, if you really are positive and you uh, work on it, because I get asked the question, how do you keep uh, uh, then then Hashem will help you succeed. Excellent. What made you go into journalism? <laughs> I was always, as you just heard me say, uh, inquisitive. And uh, my, my field was uh, uh, philosophy, which is uh, anal analytical and uh, inquiring how and why and how things happen. And I, I, I once saw an advertisement in the paper that they needed a telephonist for a call-in show. And the telephonist for calling show is the person you ring in and want to say something, he'll say, what do you want to talk about? Or he'll send you back and say, no, we're not, uh, this is not the subject we're discussing. Or uh, come back when you uh, uh, have gathered your thoughts. Or we'll call you back. We have your number. And I did that. And they, they realized very soon that I had perhaps a little more uh, intelligence than, than just only doing that because you do need to make judgment when somebody calls in who they are and what they are and so on although of course good radio stations have a button that gives a seven second delay so if someone says anything uh, anything bad you press the button there's music seven seconds and it's gone but uh, they found that I could do a little more they called me occasionally for my view on air um, and that's how it developed. Uh, today they have to study journalism. Uh, it was something that was bashert in a sense and also worked well with your education and your personality. And at no, that point, I didn't have much, no, I didn't have much education. I mean, uh, the education I had was basic in German schools and then I wasn't even 
allowed to take part. We may have come to that when I was sent to the back of the class and so on. And then I got thrown out of school. It was probably innate, uh, the warum, the, the why. And uh, subsequently, uh, I, I, in, while I'm working, while I'm working, I was at university and working in later life, very late in life. Politics and human rights are at the center of every political conversation. What have you learned about, I would say, social justice and the government over the years um, and your lifetime as a journalist, as an Israeli? What are your opinions? How many, how many hours have you got? <laughs> uh, In a nutshell. Human rights. We have the Torah. We have the Talmud. All these things, human rights and all this uh, way of life, that was all already discussed by our sages. You read the, uh, the Talmud, you find they're discussing every facet of life. We as Jews, unlike many other religions who have blind faith, we are encouraged to discuss and to talk about it. And usually we, uh, we come to uh, similar conclusions. We, had, uh, we have uh, there are differences of opinion about all, all uh, aspects of life. We had the famous uh, people, uh, Hillel and Shammai, good people, but they had different as a way of looking at life. To deal with all those aspects that they are making a big fuss about today, you just have to read our scriptures. It's all there. It's all there. Uh, the, the, the how you should behave and how you should be to your look. You how you should be to your neighbor. Look, the other religions have taken it for us. Love your neighbor like, like yourself. The whole um, ethics and moral that people talk about today all comes from Judaism. Everything comes from Judaism. The Ten Commandments can come from Judaism. I, I can only recommend people you they want to study all those things that they talk about. They're going overboard. They're trying to be too clever. People are trying to be too clever. Vogue, children's education, the gender business, it's madness that the people do not know anymore how to live and what to say. So they're inventing, they're trying to be Oberkuchen. Oberkuchen, yeah. They try to be too, too, too clever and then they're inventing all those things, particularly, to, you know, the human rights is connected with the gender policy that they have uh, everywhere. And the anti-Israel agenda. The second half of the question was about governments. You know, the Torah defines our lifestyle as Jewish people, but not, as, not for governments around the world. God is not the bottom line for government. So do you feel that in today's day and age, uh, the Jewish people should be concerned about the government, the Israeli government, the American well, government? Uh, to the Americans, I just have one word, make Aliyah because life is not going to get any better for you. It can only get worse. We are living today in the equivalent times of the 1930s in the world with anti-Semitism. The only good thing is that it can never culminate into what happened under the Nazis because, Boch Hashem, we have thank Israel. God, we have the state of Israel. But we're living in the 1930s. The, the world has, because of uh, uh, technology and communications, the world has shrunk. We now, uh, in an instant, know what happens somewhere else, and that does affect us as Jews and affects us as Israelis. So we do have to look over our shoulders. It's no longer possible to do just as we like because economically, also, we are intertwined with the rest of the world, trade and so on. So therefore, we, we have to watch what's going on and we, we have to be more pragmatic. 
Okay, so let's talk about Israel, Israeli politics in specific. As far as Israel goes, we all know that the era of Mashiach hopefully is around the corner, around the bend, and it's something we believe in as Jews. Do you think there will ever be peace in the Middle East before the times of Mashiach? Unless Mashiach comes and we hope every day, every day, every Shabbos. If that doesn't happen, I, I, I don't think we are ready for it. It's not in my lifetime. The Jewish people are not ready today for Mashiach because we, we are not yet united enough. Mashiach will help to unite us, but we, there must be a basis. And, I, uh, and so long as there are people, Jews, who fight each other, and this is unfortunately happening in the outside world, in, in America, as long as they feel other lifestyles are better and moving to other lifestyles, uh, all this uh, assimilation, and then fighting th those of us who want to uh, maintain a, a Jewish lifestyle also in Israel, fighting, so long we are not ready for Mashiach. Uh, and what we are doing in Israel It'll never happen because Hashem will, will... We have a very good general, you know, but we are trying to destroy ourselves here. This is what we're doing. This infighting... Look, we have a government now that hopefully will last four years and can do its program. Today's newspaper headline says, Lapid says, we will fight until we win. Why, if we have a government, should the opposition... The opposition is there to stimulate, but not the kind of fighting that the 100,000 people... Taking it to the streets. That is fighting it, to it destroy... It the country. Fighting to destroy what, uh, uh, what, what we want. Because I, I believe that in the very last analysis, even the uh, political opposition feels the state of Israel should exist. And that this government is necessary for now, well, as, we, as we, the citizens we, voted we, for them. We do. Yeah, we, you know, I, I spoke to a influential lady yesterday who, uh, who, who was also friendly with the U.S. ambassador, and she said she asked him outright, Tell me, in your heart of hearts, do you really believe the things that you publicly say? And that's what I'm asking. Is it, is it possible to believe, to really believe that we should give away the heartland of our country, rip the heart out of Israel? And when you look at a, a picture I have, you can see in a day they could cut us in half at the top of, of, the, of Samaria. I, look, I go deeper. I had made programs to show that there, is, that there is no justification for a Palestinian state. Where did they come from? They didn't, they were not all from here. Mahmoud Abbas, the leader of the Palestinian Authority, says, we have been here for ages for, for time immemorial. We are from the Canaanites. We had here businesses. We had here universities. We had everything. And my question to him, if I would ever get it, would be, I understand what you say. Tell me, if that is so, let's have proof. Give me the name of one of your kings, one of your leaders, one prime minister, one system of government, name it for me, before 1964 Yasser Arafat, who, who was an Egyptian and who started a nationalist movement. And unfortunately, you and every 75-year-old uh, Arab who lives uh, anywhere around here, has been brought up that way and knows nothing different and really believes that this is his country. But give me a proof. There is no proof. Every day they're digging up proof about our uh, uh, right. But it's not about facts. No, it's not. And, and today, 
when you argue politically with them. It's not about land. Judea and Samaria, that they call the West Bank. By the way, I've never seen uh, the West Bank of a river to be that wide. But if, they, if we give them a part, they will take it and tomorrow it'll start again. They'll like Gustatif. They will want more. Like they they want to get rid of us. It, so, uh, believe me, in my lifetime and in the lifetime of my children, I don't think we will come to a peaceful conclusion because they don't want peace. They want this land saying it's theirs. You have an argument. You can say, wait a minute, the Jews are now claiming 2,000 years you haven't been here. Uh, now you're claiming it's yours. Uh, that's a, that is the argument. Uh, but then, then I have evidence the Jews have always li lived here and, uh, and certainly in some cases when the majority. The Arabs that live here were mainly Bedouins or lived in small settlements like... Um, Bethlehem uh, or uh, Janine. There were some settlements. Where did they come from? It's not just that they developed here and they grew here. When the first Aliyah came at the turn of the century, there was work here. Early Kibbutzim created agriculture, the, the Hula Valley um, swamps. That created work in Arab countries, in some Arab and Middle Eastern countries, was no work. So they came because there was work here in those days. They even came from the Aegean Islands to find work here at that time. Then came the British garrison. That created a lot of work. More people came. So all these Palestinians were not Palestinians at all, no nation here. They came because we created work here, and that's how they came, because in some of the uh, Middle Eastern places there was no work. Look, a lot of people go to um, the United Arab Emirates and Dubai, and all the workers there are not locals. They're all people who went there because they found work, and the same happens here. So all our Palestinians are... But, but just to be clear, in Dubai, they're mistreated, and in Israel they were not mistreated. Uh, yeah, Arabs were never mistreated. Very good. I'm not, I, I'm not dis discussing that uh, uh, aspect of it. I'm simply saying that they came to here because there was work, in the same way as they are migrating to some of the very rich, oil-rich countries in the Gulf, because there is work there, because the local mm -hmm. population is very small. So there are no, no Palestinians, don't exist, doesn't exist. It's, it's, it's a figment of Yasser Arafat's imagination. I love that. Let's move on to a little more personal conversation. You're a parent, you're a grandparent. There's pictures of your grandchildren here in your home. Can you share a thing or two that you've learned over the years about loving and teaching your children? Every parent loves his children and every parent is proud of his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I mean, I only had one daughter. I admit the mistake. It had advantages and it had disadvantages. I should have had more children. Would have been nice today for my daughter. But in my day, it was difficult. And although as a single child, she got all the bar of chocolate to herself, she is suffering today because her sister went to the Nazi camps, killed. Why I? So by having, by my, my, me too, I was, in a sense, was a good idea. If I would have had a brother or sister, I would today suffer another layer of suffering. Why I? And this is what my, my wife always told them, suffered all her life. So, um, teach, and now, teaching the children, my daughter grew up at a time when I was off the derech, so there was not much Jewish teaching. Fourth, thankfully, she found a way all the way back, and I, I did too. 
by teaching the children uh, what, how to live. But that's by example, isn't it? It's by example. And my example in the early years of her life was not the, the best, uh, uh, the Jewish example. Uh, that I regret, of course. Uh, thankfully, her character was such that she uh, moved herself into the right circles and, uh, and uh, is today a very uh, observant Jewish woman. You have nachas? Uh, you have nachas, yes, you have nachas. I was working. While I'm working, I was traveling. I was away from home much and uh, left for, for my, my wife managed well to, to keep the children on the right path in secular ways. They didn't get into drugs, into smoking, into thank God. She was a good, I, a good mother. I, I was away a lot. I was away a lot from home. I traveled the world. When you look back at the last 50 or so decades, give or take, what are some of the world events that most uh, deeply impacted you or preoccupied your mind when you look back and you think about the history of the, the Jewish 50, people and the world? Yeah, the I would say the last 50 years. years. Well, the first thing, of course, that comes to my mind, being conditioned that way, is the rise of anti-Semitism and the, the lack of effort made by the world to arrest it. They came up with a big definition of what is anti-Semitism that some countries and some organizations have adopted and others have not. It took a very long time, only in, in the recent 10 years, that the countries in the world have woken up to the fact that if they do not uh, try to arrest this uh, tendency, this movement, then they themselves, in various ways, will, will also suffer. They, they have allowed to let it grow. They haven't taken until it affected them, until they started shooting and, uh, and, uh, and killing people. And every day you read people in, in Brooklyn, in the area, Jewish areas, uh, get accosted. And it's only now. And unfortunately, a certain, the regime in America, for instance, is still not taking it seriously now. And so that's the first thing, anti-Semitism. And, and I'm, I'm very concerned with its growth. And as I said, that we're living in a period like the 1930s. You see, <laughs> most people in the world have never seen a Jew, but they read about it. We are the awful people, particularly when there, is, uh, when there are hard time, economic times in the country. The governments never want to admit that the uh, uh, failure of the economy is, is their management. They have to find some outside thing to lead the mind of the people, to keep the, the, the mind of the people, like the, the glue to keep the people together and happy. They need a glue, and the glue is anti-Semitism. And of course, today uh, they have it a little bit easier because you have Israel, and then it's it's uh, cloaked in anti-Israelism. Uh, Israel is uh, uh, well, you read it. Uh, Israel is every, every, everything bad that, that you, you you can be racist. How, how can we be racist when we have people from all sorts of cultures who were Jewish, some uh, I'm not sure about, <laughs> but who are the Jewish. Jews come in all stripes and types. Who are Jewish, but who, that, that we have them in all colors and all, all and, and they're accepted and they're in our government. We have uh, people from all, col uh, all colors in our government. And then, and then they say that we are uh, we, we, we mistreating the Arabs and we do not give them their rights. We have Arabs in our Knesset, in our parliament. How, how can we be accused? Apartheid. Of apartheid, that's the word, right. Of how can we be accused of apartheid when we have what I call enemies even in our 
government, people who, who are working inside our government, and I don't understand how that's possible, but inside our uh, parliament, to try and destroy us, to try and, and, uh, and rip us apart, rip the country apart. I can't understand it. But what else has stood out to you in the last uh, many years incidents, maybe 9-11, things that you never thought you would see in your lifetime. Anything else that stands out? Well, of course, people say to me, that because of my age, and they wish me well, and they say, at Meave Islam, we wish you to live to 120. That came because Moses lived to 120, so we adopted that. <laughs> but then Noah lived a lot longer. 120 and the um, Twin Towers. That was just over 21 years, nearly 22 years ago. And if people wish me to 120, uh, 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 that Twin Towers was like a, uh, yesterday to me. I rem remember it, because when you're that old, these kind of memories, I remember it like yesterday. So when people say to me, 120, I say, hey, wait, 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 wait. That's machal. That's like tomorrow. 120 is another 21 years, and, uh, and, and look what and happened. It, it went like a flash with the twin towers. So where I go to pray, they say to 180, and I say I'll accept that. And when we get there, we talk again. <laughs> well, somebody died recently of 118. I uh, want to beat that. You see, on a good day, I feel like 40. On a bad day, like 50. And today is a good day. <laughs> and I don't realize my age. I talk to an 18-year-old, I feel like 18. I, I feel like they're equal. I speak to a 30-year-old, I feel like 30. I speak to a 50-year-old, I feel like 40. <laughs> And the only time I realize that I'm old is when I pass a mirror. That's fantastic. Well, I'm sitting with you already for an hour, and, yeah. uh, and I feel like we're the same age, because now we're both 40. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, is it an hour already? Well, I almost. rambled on a bit. You have a lot of editing to do. But I'm going to ask you two more questions, okay? What, what has been your most interesting interview, and what was the most challenging interview you ever did? You've, you've spoken to a lot of people over the years. Well, there are two types of interviews. There are benign interviews, like interviewing an author about his book, or someone like you interviewing me. It, that's benign, that's just uh, get, uh, human interest. Then there are confrontational interviews. Now, I had one very interesting confrontational interview with uh, an Episcopalian bishop here who had, oh, he was an Arab, uh, no longer in a job now. He had a diocese, I think from Turkey to Algeria. They had many schools here, hospitals. Mm -hmm. He was a very, very big shot in the, in the Christian community in Israel. And uh, he was not very friendly, I didn't think, to Israel. And I said to him once, it seems to me, Bishop, that you hate Israel. And he said, if you say that again, I'll sue you. I said, be my guest. Uh, then he invited me to his palace, but I never went. He's no longer in the job. That is a challenging interview. Uh, the nicest, nice interviews, uh, I interviewed a lady last week, the week before, Joanna Landau, do you know her? I do not. Of an organization that I had never heard of called Vibe Israel, V-I-B-E, Vibe Israel. She's been going for a long time. What does she do? She promotes Israel, but she says we have to get the young people. How do you get the young people? She does it through social media. She is very active in social media. Then there are bloggers, she explains to me, who have many thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers, and she invites them here 
a week all paid. These are the really big bloggers with mm -hmm. a, with an enormous uh, who are also supported by uh, commercial companies and so on. She invites eight of them here and sh and takes them to. The, uh, to the subject which is their subject. You might have food bloggers, you might have uh, bloggers about uh, uh, history, you may have bloggers about architecture. She takes them to those, to those places and shows them Israel. And they bring that back it. with them. They promote Israel. I said, wait a minute, we've got a ministry here with a big budget. And they don't need to do that much. She says, but I, that's not what I mean. I'm not in promoting tourism. I am promoting the young people to learn about Israel. And she goes through the social media. So that's a very you, you enjoy an inspiring person. That very much. It's worth living to, listening to. I, uh, it's in a very recent show of mine. But that was a very interesting interview. Then you have the politicians. You have politicians who, with whom you don't agree, like uh, uh, the uh, ambassador of the United States here, who, with whom you discuss his policy. I don't uh, fight him, I don't argue with him, I just say, uh, yes, but that's the result of your policy. That, those are interesting interviews. I, I look, I've done so many in my, in, in, in my time. I suppose the first interview serious, uh, important interview I ever did was with a German Nazi, with a Nazi foreign minister Ribbentrop. That was my first interview. And you, that, you that, held was, that was before I was even a journalist. You maybe, handled that. Maybe that was it. That's another long story. Another field that could take up another hour of interview. Indeed. Uh, my, you are my, a master. My army uh, You are a master. Yeah. Um, Last question. I hope it's uh, it's one I can answer. You are, you ask me <laughs> no, the I, questions, I, and I saw I, I sometimes felt I didn't really, I'll keep really it, answer what you, you asked. You did terrific. You did terrific. I'll keep it simple enough. We don't have as many leaders as we would um, prefer in the Jewish nation, and whenever my Sephardic husband meets somebody who's in their later years, he asks them for a bracha. So. On behalf of my audience and the Jewish people around the world, would you share either some inspirational thoughts or some brachais? Just to, I should, I should really look we can at, answer amen too. <laughs> I should really look at the notes of my talk, little talk that I gave in the synagogue. I've got a lot of things in, uh, in there, uh, Jewish things. Let me, let me, let me. You have it printed out? I have one, I have one version printed out, which is, Things and all. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Then I'm talking about um, that that um, that uh, Lubavitcher said, "If you know Aleph, you should teach Aleph." And then I said, "Tell you the truth, I I know too little to attempt much beyond Aleph, in the, particularly in the presence of." Uh, and then I said they're not necessarily the wisest. Uh, you know, that's another thing. My Melamdim in my youth worked with belts and sticks to get, uh, to get us to learn. And as you can guess, that was not a good idea. It caused learning Torah to be associated with punishment rather than with sweetness and love. This is what I got. This is why I'm not the most learned person today. You know, I was hit to look in the book, every night at Haida, after school. So you're not a fan of that type of education? Sorry? You're not, you're not a fan of that type of uh, discipline? No, no, no. How can you learn? Today, Lubavitch te teaches the children with sweets. Give them sweets when they learn tolerance. It's sweet. Uh, and I got, uh, uh, got hits. So uh, uh, that's, that's an interesting thing. Can you share with my audience an inspiring story. I know we all love a good story and you're a master storyteller. <laughs> so here's a story that sums it all up. You know, when things in life seem almost too much to handle, when the 24 hour a day is not enough, just remember it, this story. A professor stood in front of his philosophy class 
and had some items in front of him. He picked up a very large glass jar and filled it with golf balls. He then asked the students if the jar was full and they agreed that it was. The professor then picked up a box of pebbles and poured them into the jar. He shook the jar lightly and the pebbles rolled into the open spaces between the golf balls. He then asked the students again if the jar was full and they agreed it was. Next, the professor picked up a box of sand and poured it into the jar. Of course, the sand filled everything else. And he asked again if the jar was full and then the students uh, responded with a unanimous yes. The professor then produced two cups of coffee from under the table and poured those in, into the content of the jar and effectively filling all the empty spaces between the sand. The golf balls are the important things. Your God, your family, your children, your health, your friends, and your favorite passions. Think that if everything was lost and only they remained, you, sh you would still be, the, uh, your life would still be full. The pebbles are the other things that matter. Your job, your house, your car, and the sand is everything else, just the small stuff. If you pour the sand into the jar first, there's no room for the pebbles and the golf balls. The same goes for life. If you spend all your time and energy on the small stuff, you'll never have room for the things that are important in your life. Pay attention to the things that are critical in your happiness, for your happiness, that are critical for your happiness. Play with your children, make sure you're healthy, go out to dinner with your partner. There will always be time to clean up your house and to fix the repairs. Take care of the golf balls first, the things that really matter. Set your priorities, the rest is just sand. One of the students inquired what the coffee represented. Glad you asked, said the professor. It just goes to show that no matter how full your life may see how full your life may seem, there's always room for a couple of cups of coffee with a friend. <laughs> That's the lesson for life. The, deal with the big things and you've got no otherwise you have no room for the small things. And the golf balls explain that. Put them, if you put the sand first. There's no room for the other things. And there you have it, episode 80 of the Weekly Squeeze. If you love this show, please send it to a friend, drop it in a WhatsApp group, leave me a five-star rating, or join our very active WhatsApp group to discuss. Don't forget to check out OK Clarity for all your mental health care needs, and keep fighting the good fight against terrorism in all its forms. I will see you on Monday.